Well, good morning, everybody. As you can see, I'm still recovering from my head cold, so I appreciate your prayers as we go to the Word together this morning. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. As Pastor Bill mentioned last week, he and I are planning to preach together through the book of 1 Peter, or 2 Peter, here shortly. And I am extremely excited about that because I personally love sequential expositional preaching of various books of the Bible. There's nothing like it. I love it. But I've also enjoyed the freedom of parachuting into and expositing key standalone texts with you here these last two months. This has been a lot of fun for me, and it's something I don't typically get to do. Well, some of you know that before coming here, I taught through the letter of 1 Peter in a much smaller, more intimate home Bible study setting. And this morning's text is one of those passages that I've always wanted to go back and explore in in deeper, uh, greater detail and to preach because it's so simple, and yet it's so profound and so helpful. So I am thrilled to be able to do that with you this morning. Let's begin by reading the text, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is one of those powerhouse passages. It's got a lot here. You've got holiness, evangelism, identity in Christ, persecution, witness, Christian living. There is a lot of gold buried in these two verses. But it all comes back to one word that we don't hear very often today, and that's godliness. Godliness, holy living. What does that even look like? So the title of this morning's message is Inside Out, Godly Living in a Godless World. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And you look around at the world today and you see the recent events that have happened in Charlottesville. You look at the moral compromises that we see in government and education. There are new statistics that are coming out every day. One of the latest ones that I read said that there'll be another active shooting situation somewhere in the country every two and a half months. Every two and a half months. Even last night, a man was arrested in front of Buckingham Palace for waving a four-foot sword around his head and screaming, Allah Akbar. You look around, and you can't help but scratch your head and just wonder, what is going on? How do I make sense of all of this? I mean, I know God is still sovereign, but at times it appears as though the enemy has won, or is at least winning. And this world has become somehow a godless wasteland of misery. So how is the Christian supposed to navigate this mess? How do we live a godly life in a godless world? Well, thankfully, the Holy Spirit has given us a clear set of instruction, and he's made it very simple here in our text. Here we have two sentences, two verses, and two commands. You want to live a godly life? Here's how. And I'll just lay all my cards on the table up front, and I'll give you the outline. It's very simple, and I hope you don't forget it. If you want to live a godly life, you need to abstain on the inside, and you need to maintain on the outside. Abstain on the inside, and maintain on the outside. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12 This acts as a principal thesis statement for the larger central section of the text, of the letter itself. Here we are told how to live in verses 11 and 12. Peter then shows us what that looks like in everyday life, transitioning from the greater to the lesser. From there, he he begins with every human institution in verse 13, and more specifically government. He then transitions into employment in verse 18. He then steps to the side for a moment to present Christ as an illustration or an example for us to follow at all times and all circumstances, before finally addressing both wives and husbands for the first seven verses of chapter 3. 
So here's the progression. Pursue godliness by abstaining on the inside and maintaining on the outside. And here's how that looks in the real world. It looks like this, like submitting to others and putting others before yourself in all areas of life when it comes to society, work, and family. These two commands are key because they are the foundation for righteous living. And that is true for all aspects of life. It has been said that your behavior is a reflection of what you truly believe, or that one example is worth a thousand arguments. Next year, the Walt Disney Company will release a theatrical version of the childhood fantasy classic, A Wrinkle in Time. Now, I can't speak for the movie whether it will be good or bad. To be honest with you, I'm not expecting that much out of it. Last I heard, Oprah Winfrey has a part. But I do find this interesting, that the author of that children's series had this to say about godly living and its effect on evangelism. She said, evangelism is not what we tell people unless what we tell is totally consistent with who we are. It is who we are that is going to make the difference. If we do not truly enjoy our faith, nobody is going to catch the fire of enjoyment from us. If our lives are not totally centered on Christ, we will not be Christ bearers for others, no matter how pious our words. That's good. That deserves an amen. Very good. What you say is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you to preach the gospel at all times and sometimes use words. You have to use words. If you carry an old lady's groceries at the grocery market, that's a wonderful thing for you to do. But she's not going to find Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in that act. You have to share the gospel with words. So words are important. I'm not saying that they aren't. But what I am saying is that your words are meaningless if you fail to back them up with action. They're meaningless. Blaise Pascal, one of the greatest scientific minds of the 17th century, he was not converted through a well-crafted argument, scientific evidence, or undeniable proof. You would expect a great mind like his. He would, he would probably come across something in his laboratory, come to the conclusion that there must be a creator or some intelligent designer behind all of this, and maybe that's how he was converted. No, that's not how it happened for him. It wasn't until a bad accident where he found his carriage suspended on a bridge. And as he hung there between life and death, only one thing crossed his mind. All he could think of at that moment was the Christian walk and faithful witness of his sister. And it pierced his heart. Friends, godly living in a godless world matters. It matters and it makes a difference. So let's examine our first command. Abstain on the inside. Abstain on the inside. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He starts with this word, beloved. And I love that word. That is a good word. Peter liked it too. It's a beautiful word. One, of us, one that most of us don't use often enough. He says, hey you, the loved ones, loved by God and loved by me, listen up, beloved, I urge you. I urge you. This isn't a suggestion or wishful thinking on Peter's part. He's not nudging his readers to take the next step. No, he's saying, you need to do this. I'm urging you. Make sure that you put this into practice. This is gravely important, and I need you to take it seriously. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, those are very good titles, and I am so thankful that they are here. It is as though Peter is saying, I am urging you as God's chosen people, Dearly loved ones, as those who are passing through and on the outside. These titles are, are rich in history and meaning. They go all the way back to Abraham. In Genesis 23, 4, Abraham said, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. In Psalm 39, 12, David cried out, Hear my prayer, O Lord. 
And give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. In the New Testament, Paul reminded the Philippians that even though they lived here, that they were not technically citizens of earth. In Philippians 3.18 and following, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame. With minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Wow, that is so good and so encouraging. Similarly, the writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews thirteen fourteen: for here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. So just as a reminder, Christian, this is not your home, yes, but ultimately neither is heaven. Our citizenship is there, yes. It's there right now. But man's ultimate destiny lies in the new heavens and the new earth that is to come. When that which is visible and that which is invisible will come together and become one. And I am so excited for that day to come, for all of eternity. And I know you are too. But until it does, Peter encourages us by saying, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And here's our first command, to abstain on the inside, literally to keep away from the passions of the flesh. Passion is internal. It is an inward desire that germinates and festers both here and here. It starts in the head and it starts in the chest. That's where passion comes from. And passion, once it is mulled over and given time to rise, it eventually makes its way to the surface and becomes action. James 1 tells us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Not something on the outside. It's not some external influence here that causes a person to eventually stumble and fall into sin. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And it all starts with that internal desire these passions of the flesh that work their way out. But what are those desires? What are these passions of the flesh? It would probably behoove us this morning to identify them, right? I mean, surely there's more to it than just sexual temptation, although that certainly applies. Well, just as you can tell a tree from the type of fruit that it produces, you can trace sin, which has been conceived and birthed by desire or passion, back to the heart. You can always trace it back to the heart, to the cause of things, because that's where it comes from. So if you want to know what the passions of the flesh are, ask yourself, what are the results of the flesh? What are the acts of the flesh? What are the works of the flesh? What are those babies of sin that the passion of our flesh give birth to? If we can identify those, then we can trace it back to the heart, and we can identify our passions. So let's flip over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 16. Galatians 5 verse 16. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, before we push further, I think it's important for us to notice something here. That Paul is not saying that after you become a Christian, you're never going to stumble and you're never going to sin again. That is not what Paul is saying here. But what he is saying is that your life will not be characterized by the death grip and the mastery of sin for the rest of your life from from the time that you become a believer. If you walk in the Spirit, you're no longer held to its death grip anymore. And he explains why. 
He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit are at odds with each other. They are like matching poles of a powerful magnet. They don't go together. They don't play nice. They don't get along at all. They oppose each other. And for Christians, the push and the pull, the tension of these desires within us is very real. It's very real. And when we are born again, when we are regenerated, when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and into our lives and changes us and transforms us into new creations in Christ, the Holy Spirit doesn't just leave us the way that he, the way that he, he arrives, okay? He gives us new desires, desires that were not there before. All of a sudden, we want to honor God, and we want to love others in a way that was completely foreign to us before we got saved. However, our still sinful flesh hangs on, and it keeps fighting against us. Augustine would pray, Lord, deliver me from that evil man myself. I don't know about you, but I've prayed that prayer more than once. Lord, deliver me from that evil, evil, wicked, depraved man myself. Friends, the struggle is real. And you are lying to yourself today if you believe that the struggle doesn't exist in you. Because it does, unless you don't have the Spirit. That's the only way that you could possibly be comfortable this morning without the struggle being alive and active in your life, as if the Spirit is not there, because the flesh does not oppose itself. Back to Galatians 5. Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Wow. Paul says, you want to know what the desires of the flesh are? Well, here's how those desires work themselves out. Here's the sin that they give birth to. So he provides these 15 sins, which can easily be broken down into four classes or types of sinful behavior for us to consider. The first class is sins of lust. Sins of lust. He says sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. These three encompass every unclean sexual thought, desire, and action. It covers it all. And these are the sins that typically come to mind when we think of the flesh, aren't they? Because they are so tied to the flesh itself. So it is no surprise that Paul would begin his list with these three sins. Sins of lust. The second class points to wicked devotion. Wicked devotion. Idolatry and sorcery. Worship that does not have God at the very center and focus is idolatry. Anything that replaces the love that you should have for him in your heart is an idol. John Calvin famously stated that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. It's in the DNA of our nature to continually produce idols and little gods with little G's for us to worship. And sorcery isn't too far behind that, is it? An obsession with supernatural phenomena and the occult. In the ancient world, drugs were often a big part of that. Friends, these things are not only improper for God's people, but these things directly oppose the Spirit of God himself. And we need to keep that in mind, that these works of the flesh, these passions of the flesh, are complete odds with the Spirit of God himself. Wicked devotion, that's the second class. The third and largest class, one that all of us have struggled with at some time and still struggle with from time to time even now, to varying degrees, involves sins of temper. Sins of temper. Enmity, strife, jealousy, 
fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. In other words, conflict, internal swellings of hatred, and combative outbursts. People who habitually exhibit these traits are self-centered, pugnacious, belligerent, defiant, argumentative, and insolent. These are the ugly manifestations of a person's character. And immediately, as soon as we commit these sins, it affects those around us, don't they? I mean, these are relationship killers, sins of temper. That's the third class of fleshly acts. And the final class refers to sins of appetite. Sins of appetite, envy, drunkenness, and orgies. These are the sinful cravings for what others have and more, for excessiveness. The flesh isn't satisfied with what it has. It wants more. It wants what other people have. The flesh isn't satisfied with having a self-controlled drink or two. The flesh wants to get drunk continually. The flesh isn't satisfied with the natural sexual boundaries that God himself has established at the very beginning of everything. It wants a perversion that promises more. It wants more and more and more and more. And so we have these sins of appetite added to our list. Sins of lust, sins of wicked devotion, sins of temper, and sins of appetite. And just to remind us that there is even more out there than these 15 works of the flesh listed here, he adds at the very end, and things like these. Just to cover the rest. Just so we know that this list is not comprehensive in and of itself. There's even more to our sinful nature than these 15, as overwhelming as they seem. Church, as new creatures in Christ, we have freedom. We have tremendous freedom, real freedom. And we are no longer bound as slaves to sins like these. But that does not mean that we are immune to the desires of the old Adam. For as long as we are here, the battle rages on. So Peter gives us this first command to abstain, to keep away from the passions of the flesh, because these desires are out for blood. They want to see us dead. They are not our friends. The Spirit has given us life. It has given us life more abundant and everlasting. But these passions of the flesh, they are out to destroy us. Another thing to consider when looking at 1 Peter 2.11 is the fact that this command comes to us on the coattails of verses 9 and 10. Let's head back to 1 Peter chapter 2. And look at verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did you catch that? We are a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, royalty and the priesthood were two totally separate things. You had the line of Judah, and you had the line of Levi. And one of the unique things about our Savior, him being both king and priest, and how those things have worked out, I wish, if, if, I don't want to keep you here too long this morning, so we won't get into that. It's a wonderful study, and I'm sure we'll touch on it someday. But the point of this passage is that we are a royal priesthood, kings and priests, And both stations in the Old Testament, both king and priest, called for personal holiness and discipline. The kings were required to copy God's law by hand and meditate on it daily. And if you were a priest, you would need to make extra certain, you would need to be extra careful that you were clean before God, before you would enter into his presence. Because it was physically dangerous if you weren't. It was even deadly for a priest to enter into the Lord's presence in a sinful state. And we'll see here in a moment that it is spiritually dangerous and deadly for us to play with sin as well. 
Now, we have an idea now what fleshly passions look like. The next question is, why should we abstain from them at all costs? Well, there are probably hundreds of reasons that can be pulled from the well of Scripture alone, but at least two extremely compelling reasons are provided for us here in our text. The first reason is simply because we are different. We are different. Remember, we are sojourners and exiles. Notice that this call to abstain is tied to your position. It's tied to your position as a beloved sojourner and exile. As Peter has already mentioned in verse 10, you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. Because of his mercy, we have been brought together, and we are his people through a common bond in Christ. And this is in your outline, and I hope it's a good thing for all of us to remember, is that we act different because we are different. We act different because we are different. And this is a common theme throughout all of 1 Peter. This theme of abstaining from and moving forward because you are. Because you are. We see it in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And again in verses 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We don't live like the world. Rather, we are strange strangers because we are not like them. We act different because we are different. That's reason number one for abstaining from the flesh. Reason number two, and this is a biggie, we are at war. We are at war. Look at the rest of the verse. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. Fleshly passions are not the Christian's best friend. In fact, this phrase was often used in the ancient world to speak of a mortal threat, a threat that was out to take your life. This isn't, this isn't some annoying little tick on the heel. This is a mortal threat. And the moment you became a Christian, a war broke out against your soul. Your own flesh is the enemy, and it's out for blood, your blood. The Christian has three key enemies. And I know you're aware of this already, but it's worth repeating. You have the powers of Satan, the world, and yourself. The Christian has three enemies. The powers of Satan, the world, and himself. And of those three, this final one is the most personal. Because you can't separate a man from his soul. It can't happen. Internal passions have the ability to make a Christian's life miserable and wound us deeply. They twist the heart and mar the inner man. They wage war against the Christian spirit. Because they wage war against God's spirit. It is so important to abstain on the inside. Because what happens there affects everything else. So like it or not, soldier, you are in a war. So take the fight seriously. Take it seriously. Because if you don't, you will lose. And I have to clarify that. Because I'm not saying that the spirit of Christ in you is not powerful enough to overcome. That's not what I'm saying. And that's certainly not what Peter is saying here either. But just because Christ has won the war does not mean that you should willfully lose every battle along the way to glory. Who does that? The redeemed, they don't willfully lose. Those who possess the Spirit would never willfully lose. Those who walk in the Spirit don't continually fall into sin over and over and over again and continually lose. No one, who does that? Who accepts defeat over and over and over again? Who doesn't fight at all? Again, if you're not fighting at all, 
then the conflict is probably not there within you this morning. And if the conflict is not there within you, that means the spirit is probably absent. And you need to evaluate that. You need to ask yourself the question, am I comfortable because I've arrived and I'm the one person here in this life, in this world, who has achieved total sanctification and I no longer struggle with the flesh? Or am I comfortable this morning because I don't have the spirit opposing my flesh? It's a good question to ask. It's a question we all need to ask from time to time. Because the spirit and the flesh are not friends. They hate each other. Beloved, you are kings. You are priests. You are God's people. You are sojourners and you are exiles. And the passions of the flesh want to see you dead. Take the fight seriously. Take it seriously. That's command number one. Abstain on the inside. Command number two, for rightly living in a world gone wrong. Maintain on the outside. Maintain on the outside. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, maintain honorable conduct around unbelievers. And this is so important. Don't just abstain on the inside. Maintain on the outside. So let's ask the next obvious question. What does honorable conduct among the unbelieving world look like? What does it look like? What is honorable conduct? What is dishonorable conduct? What does that look like? Well, we've already visited Galatians 5, so let's flip over to Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3. I don't know how you were taught as a child or how you remember the uh, order of the smaller books here, the smaller epistles, but I always think, go eat popcorn. I don't know where I heard that, but a long time ago it stuck. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Like Paul, we'll start off with the bad stuff and we'll end with the good. What does dishonorable conduct look like? Starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now that your life is no longer characterized by so much dishonorable conduct, you need to make the conscious effort to put those old ways away. And that leaves a hole. So Paul doesn't just tell us what not to do. He continues on with the good in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now notice he's doing the exact same thing that Peter does in our text. He says, this is who you are. Now in light of that fact, here is how you should act. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what is Paul telling us here? 
He's saying for dishonorable conduct, put to death things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. And don't forget, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, and seriously, stop lying. Just cut it out. For honorable conduct, be sure to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, and above all love. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And do everything with thankfulness. Colossians 3 is a lot like Galatians 5, only on steroids. It is so good and so comprehensive. But even this doesn't cover it all. We know that because our Bible is a lot thicker than that. And you will remember that back there in Galatians 5, there we have another positive side of things too, don't we? That we didn't read earlier, and that is the fruit of the Spirit. And what are they? They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Such a good place to start. What does honorable and dishonorable conduct look like among the Gentiles? Well, I encourage you to meditate on and even memorize Colossians 3. But the shorter list, the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5, that's a wonderful launching pad for self-evaluation. Because friends, your conduct matters. Our conduct matters. The next time you're invited to go somewhere and participate in something, the next time that you're on Facebook, that's a big one, the next time you get behind a wheel, the next time you feel cheated, the next time you feel slandered, remember who you are and act accordingly. Keep your conduct within this unbelieving world honorable. Just do it. Romans thirteen twelve says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Such a good verse. And that sums it up, doesn't it? Romans thirteen twelve. The night is gone, the day is at hand. Let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Well, what does Peter say next in our text? He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. So when they speak against you as evildoers. My favorite dead preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once observed, The more holy your life is, the more they will probably speak against you. And isn't that the truth? Even if you could live like an angel, some would call you a devil. But you are not to be judged by man's judgment. Thank God for that. End quote. People are going to get nasty. Ever since the earliest days of our faith, Christianity has always been on the chopping block. Even with this letter of Peter's, when it was written, the unbelieving world that he lived in, they had terrible things to say about Christians. And here are some of the more popular charges that were often made against believers back then. They were often accused of disloyalty to the state, or Caesar, because the state required worship, and the Christians refused to worship a man instead of the one true living God. So they were accused of disloyalty. They were unpatriotic. They were accused of upsetting trades and spiritual markets. A lot of trade in the ancient world had to do with mysticism and false gods and false religions. And the Christians would mess that up. They would shake the cart. So they were accused of upsetting trade. They were accused of teaching slaves and servants to rebel against their masters because of the fresh identity they had in Christ. They were accused of not participating in pagan festivals because of their hatred of mankind. Well, obviously those Christians must hate mankind because they won't participate in all of these pagan frivolities that we are a part of. They were indicted of holding antisocial values, of being atheistic because they had no idols. They were accused of participating in drunken orgies. These early Christians were even accused of human trafficking 
and cannibalism. They were often called child stealers and child eaters. Because, you have to remember, the internet had not been invented yet, and stories concerning what happened around the communion table were greatly exaggerated. Well, that might not be the case today, but we do have our own fair share of false accusations that are brought against us, don't we? What are some of the charges that non-Christians, unbelievers, bring against believers today? We hear it all the time. Christians are unloving. Christians are controlling, intolerant, misogynistic, narrow-minded, militant, hypocritical, liars, delusional, gullible, reactionary, meddling, bigots. I hear that all the time. Make no mistake, believer, you will be slandered. It will happen. You will be called these things. Whether they're true or not, the world doesn't care. It will happen. Just make sure that when you are slandered, it's for doing good and nothing else. Friends, I really don't want to be rude this morning, so please take this in the spirit that is intended. But it is so important, I included it on your outline. So it's in print. You can hold me to it. Please, don't be a jerk with God's truth. Please. Sometimes it's easy for us to get caught up in the moment and lose sight of the goal. We've all been there at one time or another. Both God's glory and the other person's good get thrown out the window. And all you care about in that moment is being right. When that happens, please, friend, do not lie to yourself and say that you are being persecuted for speaking the truth. You are not the victim in that situation. When a Christian gets slandered because they forget the importance of keeping their conduct among the unbelieving world honorable, they give unbelievers good reason to bring slander. Why? Because they are not loving. Because they are impatient. Because they're combative. They're unkind. They don't practice self-control. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit disappears. And we cannot afford to lose the fruit of the Spirit especially in our conversations with an unbelieving world. Look, the truth is important. The truth is so important, but not without the Spirit. When we throw out the fruit, we mishandle the truth. Without love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, you and I just get in the way. We stand in the way of truth. No matter how right we are, we have to have these qualities. So don't forget, it's possible to be right, but still stand in the way of truth. Don't be a jerk with God's truth. Rather, represent Christ well by walking in the spirit of truth when you speak and share the truth. That is so important. And here's the reason why. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As sojourners and exiles, In this great drama of life, we are literally the good guys. We're the white hats. And isn't that great? I'm thankful for that fact. And people need to see that. They need to see our good deeds. The internal transformation of a Christian's life needs to be visible on the outside in what we do, not just what we say. Now this last phrase, on the day of visitation, it has proved problematic for theologians, interpreters, and casual Bible readers for centuries. Literally, it says, on the day he visits us. On the day he visits us. What does that mean? Well, there are two primary views. The first is that Peter is referring to the return of the Lord. The return of the Lord. That awesome day when every knee will bow and everyone will see our Savior adorned in glory, crowned in majesty. Tom Schreiner writes, They will glorify God in the day when they are judged, acknowledging at that time the good works of believers and vindicating God's justice. That's the first view, the return of the Lord. 
The second view is that Peter is referring to salvation. Salvation. That the day he visits us refers to God's gracious visitation of salvation. The idea is that unbelievers will continually observe our good works, and perhaps God will grant them repentance unto life as a result. Now let me just say, that's possible. Number two is possible. It most certainly is. That could be the the correct way to interpret this passage. Um, I'm not saying that it's impossible, but I lean more towards the first view, and I'll tell you why. Two reasons. First of all, Peter has the end times in mind when he writes this letter. It's clear all throughout 1 Peter. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ hasn't happened yet, but it will. Peter refers to the end again in verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says that the end of all things is at hand. Later that chapter, he will refer to the ultimate outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God. In chapter 5, verse 1, he talks about being a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. This letter is continually looking to the future as a source of hope and comfort for the present. That's the first reason. But there's another one. Interpretation number two is possible. Again, I say it's possible that he's talking about salvation. But number one is guaranteed. It's a promise fact. The salvation of those who observe our witness is not a sure thing. But all men will someday give an account for the things that they have done in life. That much is guaranteed. So of the two, that's where I lean. I really hope we can all still be friends. And I really hope that this is not one of those things that we have to break fellowship over because it's not that to me, okay? But regardless of where any of us land, the point of the text remains the same. That doesn't change. And this truth should motivate us all the same way. Whether the unbeliever remembers our good deeds and glorifies God at the point of salvation or whether they remember our good deeds and glorify God on the day he returns in glory and judgment. Either way... The point is that someday they will remember our good deeds because we have done them and glorify God, hopefully before the end has come. Well, Mark Twain once admitted that few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. And that's true, more often than not. But that's not always a bad thing. Years ago, the Chinese government commissioned an author to write a biography of Hudson Taylor. His task was simple, distort the facts discredit Taylor's ministry, destroy the missionary's legacy. So, the communist author went to work. He began digging through historical records and compiling research, ripe for twisting. However, as he read Taylor's character, as he read about his godly life, he found it harder and harder to carry out his task with a clear conscience. Eventually, at the risk of losing his own life, the author put aside his pen, renounced atheism, and followed Christ. Whether we realize it or not, The unbelieving world is watching. Jesus said, Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, put it well when he said, The Christian is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in God. I love that quote. The Christian is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in God. Beloved, godly living in a godless world matters. It matters. 
Unbelievers will slander us. They'll lie about us. They'll accuse us of terrible things. And they will be right if we fail when it comes to holy living. If we fail to heed Peter's urgent instructions here, if we never abstain on the inside and maintain on the outside, we fail. Abstaining means putting on and putting off. Walking in the spirit, not the flesh. Living in the light, not the darkness. Maintaining means putting holiness into practice. Standing on the truth and not in the way of truth. And shining the light of Christ at all times. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again so much for bringing us together and giving us the privilege of looking at your word. And I pray that your word would do its work this morning, even now, even into the rest of this week, that we would remember these two very simple yet profound truths, that we would abstain on the inside and we would maintain on the outside. Lord, you have given us very clear marching orders, and we know that we are, in, we are at war this morning, and that one of the primary enemies that we face day after day lies within us. It's ourselves. It's the sinful fleshly passions that wage war against our very souls. Lord, give us strength. Give us wisdom. Help us, Lord, to identify these passions of the flesh. We have looked at more than 15 of them this morning. Lord, I pray that we would hold on to what your word says about what our future hope is and the victory that we have in you. But I also pray that we would walk in the spirit, that we would have sweet communion with your spirit, that we would live out who we are as sojourners and exiles in this world. It's okay that we're different. It's okay because we are at war. Lord, give us the strength to obey your commands and encourage us with this truth even throughout the week as we go on in our interactions at work, at play, in all of the different scenarios and situations in life that you present to us. I pray that we would be found faithful, that we would walk in your spirit, and that we would put these things first. Bring them to our minds, write them on our hearts, and guide us throughout our week. Again, we love you, we thank you for these truths, and we give you praise and we give you glory for them in your name. Amen.